Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. What a joy it is to stand before you today. I have looked forward to this occasion for some years since we first booked the meeting. It's been a while since I was back in this area, and I have always had a wonderful feeling of feeling at home when I come to this area. People are always so genuinely kind and cordial, so very nice and warm in their greetings, and you have been that way this morning. You've made me feel welcome, and I'm glad to be with you. I want you to get acquainted with my Norma. She's the little white-headed lady down at the front. I used to say gray-headed. She said, don't say that anymore, so I don't. But she, uh, she will bring something special to the meeting. She is the wind beneath my wings, and we had an anniversary yesterday, which we celebrated in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, and uh, we were on the airplane coming, and suddenly a little child became deathly ill and stopped breathing. And uh, so we had to, we went back to Shreveport, and we did something that nobody else has ever done. Southwest Airlines has never landed before in Shreveport, but they have now. The little child was back breathing by the time the paramedics got it, got him, and we don't know what the situation was. So uh, we uh, we've had an eventful start and an event, eventful uh, anniversary. Good to see you this morning and to be with you. Handling situations is dependent on two or three things. Number one, you have to have a sufficient amount of information to handle any situation. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You have to be informed about it. If you're a plumber, you have to know enough about putting things together so that you can plumb something. If you're an electrician, you have to know which wires match which, and you don't want to do something that would incur some sort of problem. The same is true with living the Christian life. It requires a proper amount of information. And if you don't have that information, when you come to confront problems and difficulties, then you run the risk of making poor decisions, or you run the risk of causing problems not only for yourself, but for other people who might be involved in the same situation in which you're trying to effect a solution. So, Information is absolutely necessary. Communication is the basic tool of God. Uh, everything about him reeks of the business of communication. Uh, the psalmist tells us that the, the heavens declare uh, the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, day unto day they utter speech, and night unto night they give knowledge. And so God communicates to us through nature. And we do see his uh, reality. We see his orderliness. We see his purposes. We see a lot of things about him, and we recognize those things just by looking at nature. We see its order. We see its, uh, its cosmos, its arrangement. And as a result of that, we say to ourselves, well, somebody did that. Somebody fixed that that way. Somebody constructed that so that it operates predictably. But we do not know God's name. We do not know how to please the Almighty. We don't know how we come to Him to present ourselves as His creatures until such a time as He revealed Himself to us. 
He started that early on by speaking personally with the prophets. Then, of course, came his uh, covenant relationship with the children of Israel. And then following that, we have the communication, which is described in John, the first chapter, when John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the way that needs to be said. The emphasis is not on was. It's on what he was. He was God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without him, we are told quickly that the communication that we see round about us is his handiwork. Without him was not anything made that was made. Then he comes along, and a little bit later he says, The law, which was the expression of God to the children of Israel, came by Moses. But grace and truth, the ultimacy of the communication of God, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten God. So our communication with God, our uh, relationship, our fellowship, our intercourse with God Almighty is one of communicating. And He has communicated His Word to us. John chapter 20 says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the midst of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. The Apostle Paul speaks to us about that communication in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, nor of knowledge, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech, hear it now, that's communication. And my preaching, that's communicated message with motivation attached to it. My speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom. That's what man has figured out. But, he says, my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world. That's the educated of this world, which come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which was before the world ordained to our glory. And the we there I take to be the inspired writers and apostles. And he says, For what things knoweth the mind of a man, save the, man, that the spirit of the man that's in him? He first says, I have not seen. That's man's powers of observation. Ear has not heard, not by the classic form of learning where a teacher passes along information to a student. Not by eye hath not heard, nor ear, eye have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. Man's inventive genius could not have concocted the means for his own salvation. Listen to the verse now. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But he hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, 
For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what things knoweth the mind of a man, save the spirit of the man that's in him. Illustration, Paul. Even so the things of God knoweth no man, save the Spirit of God that's in him. I don't know what you think. If you don't tell me, I may be strongly suspicious of something, but I don't know until you tell me. And he says the Spirit of God was the same way. You don't know the mind of God except he has revealed something to you. So he speaks on then and says we have been endowed with this uh, uh, in cloaking of the Spirit, and as a result of that, we have the mind of Christ, he says at the end. And he has just said prior to that, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, nor can he know them. And he says, uh, I take the natural man there to mean the man unattended by inspiration. You, you can't figure out God just because you're a man. The natural man, apart from the inspired record, cannot know. But God hath revealed them unto, his, unto us by His Spirit, he said. So then, we have a sufficient amount of information. What a sorry turn of events. And what a sad kind of realization to understand that our Bibles sit on the coffee table, pressing funeral flowers, wedding invitations, and other such memorabilia. Because you have at your disposal the mind of Christ. If somebody were to give you, and you had cancer, and somebody gave you the, a little booklet that said, now if you'll follow this booklet, you'll be healed of your cancer, would you sit it on your coffee table and just leave it there? You would have your nose in it, and you would be serious about ascertaining its content. This book that we call the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, furnishes us with the wisdom to live life so that we have an eternal existence, which is better than having the cure for cancer. And so it deserves no such relegation as we have given it because of our inattention and because of our lethargy in trying to understand it. The Bible is the wisdom of God. It touches every area of our lives. James says, uh, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers trials, knowing this, that the trial of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Then he says, If any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. A little bit later in chapter 3, he speaks of the wisdom of God, and he, he makes a, a startling statement about it. He says the wisdom that is from below, that is worldly wisdom, the kind that we talked about earlier, in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, or verse 17, uh, he, he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That passage is impregnated with all kinds of significant ramifications that come out of the concept of wisdom. He says wisdom affects everything. It's pure. That it is... 
unadulterated is a biblical thought. The wisdom that is from above has nothing in it that is impure. It has nothing in it that will cause you to have an improper motive. It has nothing in it that will promote selfishness. It has nothing in it that will propagate any kind of ungodly kind of activity on our parts. And so it is pure. Then it's peaceable. The first peace that is affected by God is the peace that all of us need. That is the peace between God and man. That's the angelic proclamation. When he said at the holy annunciation, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He's not talking about peace between us and Iraq. He's talking about peace between man and God, which had not been possible until the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so then it's gentle, that is, it's meek, it will not get out of order, it stays in its place, it's easy to be entreated, it makes sense, it's full of mercy and good fruits and without partiality and without hypocrisy. It's the only piece of truth, ladies and gentlemen, that those things can be said about. You can talk about anything you want to talk about, and it will not rival the wisdom of God. Now, if I ask a question this morning, what is wisdom? Hands would go up all over the auditorium, because everybody understands what wisdom is. Somebody said wisdom is applied knowledge. Applied knowledge. Now, a question should follow that, it seems to me. If wisdom is applied knowledge, and certainly it is, then how, pray tell me, can we apply what we do not know? Knowledge is knowledge. It's what you know. I don't know. Have you ever wondered why we have a K in front of no? Uh, it's from the Greek word gnosko. And that means to know. And that's what we do when we have knowledge. We know something. And so... Uh, Knowledge has to be the predicate on which all wisdom rests. We can't have any good choices except by accident. And those choices are, are not to be revered because they are accidental. The choices that are to be revered and exalted are the choices that we make because we put the Word of God to work and it affects or brings about the best solution for everybody's in it who's concerned with it, especially the person who made the choices. And life is filled with all kinds of difficult choices. We must have, then, the information with which to make good choices. So wisdom is indeed applied knowledge. Now, may I say to you that the knowledge, as I've implied already, is no good when it sits on the coffee table. You have to get it into your mind. It seems to me to be no accident that the very first parable that Jesus ever taught, the parable of the sower and the soils, seems to me to be very significant because it is a parable that has to do with hearing. In Luke, the 8th chapter, after he's gotten through with that, uh, he says, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. I want to suggest to you that everybody has a funnel to his heart. And what hearing is all about is that funnel. And if you don't have it stuck in there so that the hearing can get in there, then you don't have sufficient knowledge with which to handle situations, no matter how easy they are. And you will make more choices that are poor than you will make good ones. And when you do make good ones, it will be accidental. Now, he says don't let anything get in the way of your 
receptivity. That's what he's saying. So then, he says, take heed how you hear. One of the renditions says, take heed what you hear. And that's essentially the same thing, because what you hear and how you hear are the two things that make the knowledge usable, functional, when it finally reaches your mind. So then, this business of wisdom is necessary to handling life. Decisions that we make range from small, very small kinds of things, like some kind of a little situation in the morning between you and your wife. You have to have a decision to make good choices in regard to those that you love. And you have to have good decisions uh, to make choices with regard to how you act. I was impressed, terribly so yesterday, with the people on that airliner. Everybody was being late. People were missing flights. People were having to make phone calls to make new arrangements for different things. And not one person that I saw ever got out of sorts. That's a really good choice. And I told the ladies when we left, I said, you people have done a magnificent job of keeping everybody in their right place and everybody happy. And they did. They made a wonderful choice. We make choices like that all the time. And could I suggest something to you? The smallest choices that we make are just as important as the large choices we make. Truth is truth, even if it's small. Truth is truth, even if it isn't a large kind of situation. That includes being nice to somebody at the restaurant. It includes being nice with somebody at the airport or being nice with somebody at the dry cleaners or the grocery store. It means saying thank you. We had a waiter a few nights ago. We were in a place eating dinner. And I said something to the waiter. I said, uh, boy, this is really good. And he said, thank you. I said, could I shake your hand? He said, why? I said, because you didn't say no problem. I am so tired of hearing no problem, I could spit. I don't like that. It makes it sound like I went to great difficulty to do this, but it's no problem. No, why can't you just say you're welcome? Now, that's just a personal little hang-up I thought I'd throw out there. But the fact is that the small choices that we make are what show our Christianity. Most people make pretty good choices that are Christians when it comes to the big things. It's the little things that we have trouble with. And I suggest to you that the whole of your character is comprised of the componently arranged little things that together make your character. And so it's important that we make wise choices in regard to the little things like we do the big things. I want to read a passage now that I believe more succinctly sets forth the concept of wisdom than any place that I know of in the Bible. And Solomon, if he be the writer, gives uh, real credence to all of this in Proverbs, the first chapter. And he spends a couple of three chapters talking about wisdom as if she were a lady and tells you what all you can do. But... Uh, he begins this with what I have chosen to term the prologue to the Proverbs. Read with me from chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, 
justice, and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. This little section of Scripture is replete with implications about the concept of wisdom. I want you to look, first of all, at the terms. Uh, let me suggest something to you. And I, I don't want to insult your intelligence. You probably know this already. If you know it, well, you can think about something else while I'm talking about this. Words, words are really interesting. There's a difference between a word and a term. All terms are words, but not all words are terms. Terms are words set in a context. You can take one word and use it four or five different ways, and it has four or five slightly different meanings if it's settled in a different context. And so you measure a word, if it's a term, by how it's set in the context. The words that are set in this context are words having to do with wisdom. And if you look at them carefully, every one of them is a term that has to do with making wise choices. Because that's what wisdom is. It's really a simplistic definition, this business of wisdom as applied knowledge. That's a bit simplistic. Because what it is, is making a choice... The, the result of which benefits everybody concerned with that problem. That, that's true wisdom. That's an elongation a little bit of that, of that uh, definition. And so the words that are used here are words that have to do with that. And they're all synonyms. Every one of them. Look at them. Instruction, understanding, subtlety, knowledge, and learning. All of those terms, every one of them, perception, understanding, instruction, justice, judgment, equity, all those, if you look in the dictionary, mean something that has to do with the other one. Every one of them does. All right, let's just, just look. Take, first of all, understanding. Understanding. We still take words for granted. Most of the time in English, if you have a word that is a double word, it has two words in it that forms one word, if you flip-flop the words, sometimes you can get a real good understanding of it. Our word understanding is comprised of under and standing. It's what stands under. It's what stands under something. Please be advised that we need foundation for whatever we do. Fundamentals are so vital. It doesn't make any difference if you talk about medicine, if you talk about politics, if you talk about whatever Fundamentals are necessary. In fact, have you ever thought about where we get the word funds? Funds are necessary for anything, aren't they? If you don't have the money to do it, you can't do it. Funds comes from fundamental. It's the basic thing on which we build whatever we build. If you're going to build a house, I'll tell you what you build it on. You don't build it on your foundation. You build it on your money. 
And if you don't have the money, you've got no foundation. It's just that simple. So that, that's the concept that we need to get fixed here, is that these ideas of, of fundamental understanding, what, that's what's behind everything, is to understand, to comprehend. There's, there's a word in the English that has uh, gone into disrepute or disuse anyway, because it's hard to say, but I love the word. It is the word perspicuity or perspicaciousness. Perspicuity is a, it, it's, well, it's a, it's a visual term. It's a term of vision. And it means to see into and through a thing. If a person has perspicuity, he sees through every part of it from the beginning all the way to the end. That's wisdom. That's understanding. That's perspicaciousness. It means that you see the end of the thing from the beginning. And that is very important to, to living the Christian life. So understanding is insight. Now, there's another one of those words. I hadn't thought about it, but there's another one of those words that you can flip-flop again. Sight in, looking into something. And then it means good sense. We usually think of understanding as just being, as the Baconian would tell you, just common sense. Common sense. And then he says to perceive the words of understanding. What is perception? Well, it's that same idea of seeing into something, of perceiving it. And he notice says perceive the words of understanding. It's all built on the communication. Every bit of it is. To perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom. No wisdom ever existed without there first was an instruction. Some people say he has, he's a naturally wise man. No, he ain't. He may have some proclivities that send him in that direction mentally. But nobody is naturally wise. You are wise because you have information with which to make good choices. Now, some folks are smarter than other folks. I have to admit that, and it makes me feel badly to sit in this class knowing that there are people that probably would do a better job than I do. But I have to do what I can do, you see, with what I have, and that's what you do, and that's the idea of instruction and wisdom. And then he says justice. Well, what is justice? Well, it's what, ju what is just. Well, what is just? What is just is a choice that is made in regard to right and wrong. Just choices are the right choices, you see. And that's what our justice system proposes to do, which it doesn't always do, I'm afraid. But it proposes to mete out justice to all people. That's the ideal uh, on which it's predicated. And then judgment. Well, what is judgment? Well, it's judging. And what is judging? Well, that's making choices again. And the best choices are made, I remind you, with perspicuity. That is, looking to the end of the thing. Wouldn't it be good if we would always see the end of the thing from the beginning so that our choices would be affected that way? So often we suffer from myopia, short-sightedness. 
We just don't get to the end of the thing with our minds. Maybe we're not capable. Maybe we don't have enough information. But we so often make choices short-sightedly. And as a result of that, we have to suffer the consequences of them. But there's even something to be gained from that. Because there's not only a knowledge that comes from gaining information by looking or listening, but there is experiential knowledge that comes many times from failure. If you burn your hand on the stove, you gain some experiential knowledge, and the chances are very strong that you never will do that again, on purpose anyway. So then, we have the idea of making justice, and then equity. Equity. Equity is uh, interesting, isn't it? What equity is, is uh, making things equal. It's sorting out the right parts. It's doing what is equitable, what is fair, see, to everybody. If we make choices in our interpersonal relationships predicated on what is fair, then we have a wonderful kind of end that will be affected by that. If it's fair, few people can argue with it. Now, you may have a few old soreheads that don't like the choice because he didn't see anyways near the end of the thing. And he may think you're crazy as a loon. Uh, we were at the motel this morning. There was a, a religious group there, a bunch of kids and their supervisors, and they were all over that place eating breakfast this morning. And Norman and I just commented that out of that whole place, we did not see one person. Now, here's a religious group. We did not see one person bow his head and offer thanks for his food. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong. It isn't equitable because it is not suiting out to others what they deserve, and it certainly is not giving God what he deserves. And so the fact of the matter is that it needs to be equitable. Then he says to give subtlety, subtlety to the young. I love how he says that because what it says is that we young people can be subtle too. If you didn't catch that, you're not listening like you ought to. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that a young person can be wise if he's loaded up with the things of God. That's what Solomon is going to say in the next few chapters. He said, you refuse wisdom. And he he just so beautifully depicts her as a lady. And, And he said, you refuse her and you're just letting yourself in for trouble. And he gives four or five different kinds of illustrative things that speak to the business of refusing wisdom. And, and, and he said, you're just going to make some wildly uh, terrible mistakes if you do that. So the young man can be subtle. The young man can be wise. This word subtle here in the Greek is a, has a really interesting uh, heritage. It's a nautical term. It's a nautical term. And it literally, in its uh, root, meant ropes. Ropes. You ever go sailing? A person who sails knows the ropes. That's where we get that metaphor. He knows what ropes to pull to get the sail arranged just exactly right so it can even go against the wind. He knows the ropes. Isn't that what subtlety is all about? Is knowing the ropes. I love that. It just says so much to us. That if we know the ropes, we know which one to pull, then our ship is going to go in the right direction. That's a beautiful metaphorical expression. And so literally, 
He says you have to know the ropes, even if you're a young person, and you can't. Then he says to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Knowledge, being discreet, is being wise. It's making those wise choices. We usually think of discretion in, re, in regard to social things, and that's not a bad way to look at it, because we are social creatures, and most of what we do affects somebody else. There is no such thing as personal autonomy. There's no such thing as being off here by yourself. A hermit is looked upon, we look askance at, at a hermit. We think that's out of the ordinary, that that uh, something's wrong with him, and many times that may be right. But the fact is that we're all social creatures, and so discretion plays a vital role in everything that we do. Our social contacts with those inside the body of Christ are terribly important. In the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul says to two of the women there, you get your minds fixed on the same thing. You had two women there that had bumped into one another. And I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, with candor, that we cannot exist in a fellowship of the saints without bumping into one another once in a while. The problem is not bumping into one another, but how we handle the problem when it happens. And that's the reason we ought to be very careful to be discretionary, to take good warning, to take good sense and apply it to the situation to understand that if we don't do that, something at the end is going to be catastrophic. And we don't want that. It's not going it's going to disrupt the entirety of the fellowship and we don't need that kind of thing. I would to God that I could get that a point across to my brethren. We have done a wonderful job of restoring New Testament Christianity. We have New Testament churches. We have churches that offer worship that is in accord with how the New Testament does it. But as I shall say in the lesson this morning at the uh, worship hour, we have done a poor, P-O-R-E, job of restoring the New Testament attitude that ought to be characteristic of Christians. Now, I'm through preaching that for a minute. But that's a bother to me. I don't mind telling you. So then, the business of... Wisdom requires discretion. Now, he describes the wise man for a minute, and he says the wise man will hear. Remember what we said about that a while ago? He said the wise man will hear and increase learning. Could I ask you a question? How much have you increased in the last six months in your learning? If the answer to that is a negative, you're not being wise. How much have you increased in your learning in the last year or the last two years? It is necessary that we continually be about the business of storing up information with which to make good choices. I, here's another thing I wish I could get across to people. Studying is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. Study to show thyself approved to God. So we run home and read the Bible. We read six verses and then we go to sleep with the Bible on our chest and we say, well, I did what God said to do, study. That's ridiculous. Study to show thyself approved to God. It's a means to an end. It's, it's something that you do to keep learning so that you have the, the, 
the predicates, the principles on which to base a wise life. And how foolish to have the cure for cancer right next to you and not do anything about it. And how foolish to have the cure for sin right next to you, which has eternal ramifications, and do nothing about it. So the wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels to understand a proverb and its interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Wisdom, ladies and gentlemen, affects every area of our lives. It affects how we speak. Few things are better than a few well-chosen words. If you know how to say what needs to be said in all circumstances, you are a wise person. If you know how to comfort the bereft, if you know how to rejoice without any sort of jealousy or envy with those that rejoice, if you know what it means to encourage somebody that is discouraged so that they are built up and edified and so that they're ready to get back in the race again, you're being a wise person. I further suggest to you that if you make poor choices of your words, be they a flippant use of God's name, or be they negative terms that are intended to hurt, no matter what they are, you are being unwise and foolish. And so, wisdom affects how we speak. And how we speak is such an important thing. How do you judge somebody? Well, there are a lot of different ways. You may judge a guy by how he dresses. You may judge a guy by where he works. You may judge a guy by what he drives. You may judge a guy by where he lives. But I'll tell you how you most often judge a person is by their words. I have seen people, I went for a meeting one time. I'll just bear my soul to you. I went for a meeting one time and there was a fellow there that taught the class. And I thought, this, he, before he got up to teach, I had visited with him a few minutes. And I thought, man, this guy's arrogant. He is arrogant. He got up to speak. And out of his mouth flowed some of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And I said, God, forgive me for judging. We became fast friends. Because when I heard what he was, then I saw what he was. There was a situation where you couldn't judge a guy by how he looked or how he was acting. But when, he saw, when you saw how he spoke, then you knew how he was. And that is very often uh, the case. Wisdom affects how we act. Some deed performed. Some solution suggested is a high use of words. I'm ashamed to tell you that I've never earned a living anyway but talking. Isn't that pitiful? I'm ashamed almost to say that I've never hit my thumb with a hammer, folks. I don't get that close to the nail. I can't fix stuff. If I say, well, we've got a plumbing problem here, I'll get my tool. If Norman says, no, sir, I'll call somebody. You just leave it to me. I'll take care of it. 
So I, I just talk, and that's, that's the only way I know to make a living. But, but I suggest to you that how we act, how we act is such an important use of wisdom. You, you have to be careful about the solutions that you suggest for people. You have to be careful about how you perform your deed. If you do it, if, if you nail the nail, but you're griping the whole time, it says something about you. Even if you're doing it for somebody, it says something about you. You have to be careful. It affects how we decide. Uh, we must wait, make wise choices. Wise choices are wisdom at its best. It affects everything in life. It affects art. It affects jurisprudence. Uh, it affects ethics. It affects our culture about which we're going to speak this week. It affects politics and economics. And I'll tell you what, wisdom starts on the playground. And it never does stop until you breathe the last breath of your life. And then I suggest to you in closing that the wisest, wisest thing of all is my Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 and verse 3. Thank you for your kind attention.